Let me pray for us. Father, we pray now, now the word has been read, that your spirit will accompany the preaching of your word, that ministry might take place, that spiritual fruit might bear forth. We pray that we may come away transformed by your word, that our hearts may be renewed, that our hearts will be filled with a great passion, desire, and love for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, last week we kicked off a new sermon series going through the Gospel of Luke that we are calling Meals with Jesus. We're going to be preaching uh, various episodes within Luke, exploring the themes of hospitality and table fellowship. Now, last Sunday, we had pointed out how this pandemic experience we're all going through has disrupted our usual practice of hosting people, of fellowshipping with one another over a meal. It's impeded our ability to practice hospitality. Well, this morning, I want to continue building on this idea of the pandemic being a disruption to the normal rhythms of our lives, to the usual ebb and flow. This has occurred, I believe, both on a personal and a congregational level. So personally, many of us have fallen out of sync with our spiritual disciplines. So, for example, perhaps uh, many of you have been utilizing your commute to listen to perhaps an audio Bible, or on your way to work, you just use that time for quiet prayer and meditation. But now, once we all started working from home, that, that rhythm got disrupted, and, and you fell out of sync. And I'm sure there are, are plenty of other examples like that where our personal devotional lives have been disrupted by the pandemic. Now, that's on a personal level. On a congregational level, it happens as well. I think we're, we're, we were always accustomed for, for, for so long to a weekly rhythm of gathering together as the worshiping people of God. But for so long, we were kept apart from each other. And, and even still, many of our fellow church members are not present with us in this room. They're watching online right now. And I'm, I'm sure there are very good reasons for that, uh, considering uh, why, uh, considering the fact that the, con- the conditions of the pandemic are still severe in our city. But you can't tell me that all of these disruptions to our life together as the church hasn't resulted in some negative effects. And I think one of those detrimental effects would be the problem of spiritual apathy. I think it's safe to say that many of us have been dealing with spiritual apathy or some might call it spiritual lukewarmness. That's where we, we still believe in God. We haven't rejected Christ. We haven't, we haven't abandoned the gospel. We haven't quit the church or, or forsaken all of our spiritual practices. We still give the, the bare minimum that devotion requires. But let's be honest. For many, our love has grown cold. Our hearts are lukewarm towards Christ and his gospel. That, my friends, is spiritual apathy. We did a whole series on the book of Malachi exploring this very theme because we, we as leaders, we, we sense that this is 
a problem that all of us are experiencing, not just our church, but hearing from pastors in other churches, spiritual apathy has gripped the hearts of many. Now, this morning's text has a lot to say about this, has a lot to say about apathy. Now, once again, like last week, we see Jesus sitting down and sharing a meal with sinners. In Luke 5, the text from last week, he shared table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, and it was a scandalous decision to dine with those people, with Levi and his tax collector friends. Now, this week, however, we're in Luke 7, and now Jesus is dining with Simon the Pharisee and all of his Pharisee friends. This time, it's in a respectable home with respectable people around the table. There's nothing scandalous here because back then, no one would have considered the meal in Luke 7 to be a meal with sinners. But that, my friends, is the great irony that needs to be addressed. You see, the banquet with Simon in Luke 7 is as much as a meal with sinners as the feast with Levi in Luke chapter 5. Those meals should be considered equally scandalous, but they're not because religious people tend to have an overinflated view of their own righteousness. They don't recognize themselves as great sinners in need of a great forgiveness, and that we shall see is the underlying root cause of spiritual apathy. It takes a physician of the soul to be able to figure something like that out. And that, my friends, is exactly what we have in Christ. In last week's passage, Jesus self-consciously identified himself as a physician. He says that he has come for the sick. He has come for sinners who are plagued by a disease that we call sin. He has come to bring a cure. He has come to bring forgiveness. So this morning, we're going to consider the second meal that Jesus has with sinners. And the great physician is going to be doing his job, and he's going to help us to accomplish three tasks as we go through this passage. So if you want to follow along, look in your outline. There's, there's a, um, look in your bulletin. There's an outline there. And you'll see that the first task that Jesus will help us to accomplish is to first diagnose an apathetic heart. So what every good doctor does initially. He diagnoses. And then secondly, he's going to help us to discover its root cause. What's behind this apathy? And third, to determine an effective treatment for an apathetic heart. So that's where we're going as we study this passage. Let's begin by diagnosing an apathetic heart. This is important because we want to be able to recognize if it's true of us, if our hearts have gone, gone cold and, and apathetic. Now, we can start by looking at two characters who encounter Jesus at this dinner banquet. The first character is Simon the Pharisee. He's the host. This is his house. Now, there's nothing to suggest that Simon had some kind of sinister motive in inviting Jesus over for a meal. In, in fact, compared to the other Pharisees in Luke's gospel, Simon seems to be generally interested in Jesus, perhaps a bit skeptical of him, not exactly sure what to make of him, but I, I'm not, I, I don't see anything here that would, that would um, indicate he's trying to trap Jesus. Now, the other character that we're introduced to is, we're told, a woman of the city who was a sinner. 
That's how she's described. We're not given many more details here, but many have suspected that she was likely a prostitute. We don't know her name. We don't know her background. All we know is that she is a woman with a scandalous past who heard about Jesus and how welcoming he is towards sinners and how he preaches good news for people like her, and she is compelled to find him, to be in his presence. What we are presented with here in this morning's passage are two contrasting characters with two contrasting responses that someone can have towards Jesus. Both Simon and the woman are in Jesus' presence. Both show interest in him. Both are listening to what he has to say, yet only one leaves with a heart filled with love and peace, secure in Jesus' forgiveness, while the other is left with a heart that is still cold and spiritually apathetic towards Christ. What made the difference between these two characters? That, my friends, is the most urgent question for each and every one of us right now. Because whether you realize it or not, we are all in the presence of Jesus right now. He is here with us in this sanctuary. All of us are listening to his teaching. And I assume by the fact that you're here, that all of us at least have some inkling of interest in him. So by the end of this service, everyone is going to go away from Jesus' presence, either like Simon or like this woman. And the question is, which one will you be? How will you respond? How will you walk away from an encounter with Christ? Now, friends, when diagnosing an apathetic heart, there are two telltale signs that are noticeable in Simon's response to both Jesus and to this woman. Here's the first sign of an apathetic heart. Someone with an apathetic heart is content with giving the bare minimum that devotion requires. That's the first sign. You're fine with just giving the bare minimum that devotion requires. That's the attitude where you just give to God what you have to. You aren't going to go beyond the call of duty. You you see this exactly in Simon's treatment of Jesus as a guest in his house, especially when you contrast that later to this woman of the city. Now, according to ancient standards of hospitality, it was customary for a host to prepare a formal banquet when you were entertaining a guest of honor which is exactly what Simon did. He did exactly what was expected of him. Now, had he asked one of his servants to wash Jesus' feet, or if he himself had kissed Jesus on the cheek, or if he had anointed his head with oil, then that would have been a welcomed, wonderful gesture. It would have expressed great affection for his guest of honor. But the key thing is, is that Simon was under no obligation to provide any of that. According to the customs of his day, he did what a host had to do. He gave the bare minimum the hospitality requires. No more, no less. So when Jesus calls him out later in verses uh, 44 uh, to 46, take note there that Jesus is not accusing Simon of discourtesy. He's not 
calling Simon a bad host. But what Jesus is doing is that he's diagnosing Simon's apathetic heart, a heart that is content with just giving the bare minimum that devotion requires. No more, no less. Now, notice how Simon's bare minimum devotion stands in stark contrast to this woman's unrestrained, extravagant devotion towards Christ. She arrives with the intent of anointing Jesus' feet, as it says in verse 37, with her alabaster flask um, of ointment. Now, you need to know something about this ointment that she brought to the banquet. First, it's not what you would normally use if you were going to anoint a dinner guest. A host would usually use inexpensive olive oil for anointing their guests, which is something that Jesus mentions in verse 46, the very thing that Simon didn't do for him. He didn't use that oil and that specific word for olive oil. The word that's found in verse 37, the word that's translated as ointment, is a different word suggesting that her flask uh, contained not just inexpensive olive oil, but a costly perfume. And secondly, the thing you need to realize about this is that she would have had to spend all of her ointment on Jesus. Because that alabaster flask that it's describing is is a vial that is typically worn around the neck. And it had a long neck itself that you would have to break off and you would snap the neck if you want to access what's in the flask. So that means once you open up the flask, you have to use all of it. You can't close it back up again. So she wasn't coming, planning on just, you know, dabbing a few drops on Jesus' feet. No, she was intent on spending all of it, using all of it on Jesus. And the third thing you need to think about is that if she was a prostitute, then this ointment would have been used within her profession. But here she is. This woman of the city, so transformed by an encounter with Christ, that she is ready and willing to transform the tools of her wicked trade into a righteous offering of worship. That's what's happening here. It's beautiful. Friends, this woman represents those who have been personally, who have personally experienced Christ in a real and powerful way. While Simon, on the other hand, represents those who have merely experienced religion. People like Simon have cold and apathetic hearts that are content with just giving the bare minimum, just what's required of them. I should go to church? Check. I should read my Bible? Check. I should give to the Lord? Okay, check. I'll do those things. I'll even invite Jesus into my life, and I'll treat him kindly. I'll politely listen to him. But there are limits of how far I'll go. There are limits to how much I'll give. I won't go overboard like some people do who recklessly abandon everything for Jesus. That's just too much. That's careless. That, my friends, is what an apathetic heart would say. That's the attitude that you will find among those who treat Christianity as mere religion. But those who have experienced Jesus, just like this woman did, 
discovered not a mere religion, but a powerful relationship. Your dead heart just comes alive and it's filled with so much love because you realize just how unworthy you are to come to Jesus in the first place. And so when you do come, you tend to bring everything with you. All of your sin, all of your shame, all of your time and treasures, and you pour them all out at his feet. That, my friends, is how great love for Jesus expresses itself. Now, that leads to another telltale sign of an apathetic heart. Someone with an apathetic heart tends to be suspicious of any of these displays of great love for Jesus. And you see that in Simon's attitude towards the woman. You see that kind of suspicion in verses 38 to 39. If you look there, here we read of how this this woman's plan to properly anoint Jesus' feet just unravels in front of everyone into this emotional mess. And then you see how Simon reacts to her unrestrained, extravagant gestures. So start in uh, verse 38 with me and just try to imagine the scene. You have this woman entering into the banquet. She's made her way to Jesus' feet, but before she can pour out the contents of her flask, she's just overwhelmed by being in his presence, overwhelmed by, by what she's hearing him say, and, and she just begins to weep uncontrollably. Now, the term used there to describe her weeping is used elsewhere in the New Testament for rain showers. So this is not a mere whimper at Jesus' feet. She is bawling. She is bawling rain shower tears at his feet. Now, once she notices the mess that she's making with her tears, she, she lets her hair down in order to wipe up the mess to dry Jesus' feet. Now, you have to realize in those days, it would have been considered immodest for a woman to unbind her hair in public. But at this point, she doesn't care about that. She's unconcerned with social proprieties at this point. And then she, she begins, as we're told, to kiss his feet. In those days, feet were one of the dirtiest parts of the body. That's why washing feet was a job given to the lowliest of servants in the household. Imagine now someone kissing feet. Do you see this woman's great love for Jesus as evidenced by her unrestrained, extravagant gestures towards him? She is overwhelmed to the point that she could really care less about what others think. She's just overwhelmed with love for Jesus. Now contrast that with Simon's little love for Jesus. He can't identify for the life of him what is going on in front of him. He, he, he cannot identify with what this woman is feeling and what she's expressing. So he just writes her off as a fanatic. All Simon knew was little love and how little love expresses itself. And so instead of admiring her or emulating her great love, he judged her and her love to be shameful. But there is nothing shameful, nothing fanatical, nothing abnormal about this woman's great love and how she expresses it with tears and with great displays of emotion. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, I, I know what some of you might be thinking. 
wait, does this mean that if I'm not experiencing these great emotional reactions to Jesus or to his gospel, if I'm not weeping whenever I think about him or I think about what he's done for me on the cross, does that mean there's something wrong with me? Has my love grown cold? Do I have an apathetic heart? Well, maybe, or maybe not. You see, looking for tears is not the point. Weeping is not the indicator of great love for Jesus. Weeping is just one of the many ways to express a great love for Christ. It's not even a clear sign. I mean, your tears could simply be from the flesh and not from a heart that's actually overwhelmed with love for Jesus. So, friends, we should not make tears the true measure of one's love or or really any other very extravagant emotional display. When I finally understood this, I, I found this to be so liberating for me because personally, you know, as, as for those of you who know me, I, I'm not a very emotional guy. I, I can only recall, I think, one or two times that I have really wept in my adult life. So I used to wonder, is there something wrong with me? But by the fact that I, I'm not expressing the same kind of emotions for God that I see other people doing when we're worshiping together. Or, you know, for example, one of my mentors, who was also my pastor at the time, would frequently be moved to tears when he preached. And I've sat under countless sermons of his, and I, I can recall many times that when he would get to that part in his sermon where he spoke of the gospel, when he spoke of what Christ did for us in, in, in his sacrifice of his life, how much he loves sinners, he would weep. He would be tearing up. He'd get choked up. I didn't do that when I preached. I, I still don't do that, and I used to feel bad about that, wondering, do I really understand the gospel? Do I really love Jesus? How come I'm not displaying these emotions like others? But when I came to realize that I was making too much of this weeping, it, it became liberating. Because I, I came to understand that, you know, look, we're all wired differently, so we shouldn't gauge our love for Jesus by measuring ourselves to others, including measuring ourselves to this woman here in Luke 7. Some people are just more expressive in their emotions than others. The question, friends, is not how greatly you show your love for Jesus. The real most important question is whether that love itself is little or great. And the best way to gauge is to measure your love not against other people, but measure your love for Jesus against yourself. Compare your love for Jesus to your love for other people, to possessions, to pursuits in life. Is your love for Jesus great when compared to these other things? I need to personally ask myself, do the emotions that I, exp- I display for Jesus match or exceed the emotions I display for my family members whom I, whom I so dearly love? for my wife and my daughters? Does does my display of emotion when I'm with them in their presence, does it match? Is it matched or is it exceeded by my experience of Christ and his presence? Is my joy 
in Jesus matched or even exceeded, does it exceed even that of, of my love for the Astros? You know, when, when, they, when they win a game in a, in a tied game and a walk-off homer, and when I'm just going crazy and cheering in that moment, I need to ask myself, I know I can get there. <laughs> I know I can react that way. That's the real test for me. So how are you doing? If I observed you for a week and just listened to what you talked about, if I took note of what you read or watched or listened to or what you invested your time or your energy into, would I be able to draw an unquestionable conclusion that you love Jesus? There might be big tears. There might be big emotions involved, but, but maybe not. But when measured against yourself, is your love for Jesus great or small? That's the question. Now, perhaps some of you are feeling uncomfortable right now, feeling a bit exposed. Like Simon, the spiritual apathy that has gripped your heart is becoming more apparent. So what do I do? What do I do? How, how do I treat an apathetic heart? Well, friends, before we can answer that, we need to discover the root cause of apathy. And that leads us to our second point. Now, there's likely a multitude of factors that contribute to your heart growing cold. But like any good physician, Jesus is going to focus in on that underlying root cause. And to help us discover the root cause of our apathy, he goes on and tells us a parable. So let's start back in verse 40. And let's look at this parable. Now, Jesus tells a parable to Simon about two debtors who both owed a certain money lender. Now, one debtor's debt was 10 times larger than the other. So one owed 500 denarii, which is worth about 20 months of wages. And the other owed 50 denarii, which is just about two months of wages. So you can see the vast difference between the two. But since neither one of them were able to pay back their debts, the moneylender graciously canceled both of them. So Jesus turns to Simon and he asks, now which of the debtors will love the moneylender more? And Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt, to which Jesus replies, you have judged rightly. Correct. And then in verses 44 to 46, Jesus goes for the juggler and he exposes the apathy that has gripped Simon's heart. Jesus shows how this woman's hospitality totally outshines Simon's. Now again, like we said earlier, no one would have considered him rude for not providing these courtesies. There was no obligation on him. But his inaction stands out when contrasted to this woman who went beyond the call of duty to express her great love for Jesus. And so we get to verse 47. And verse 47 is the key verse that explains to us how a heart turns cold and apathetic. Let me read verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now here, Jesus makes it clear that Simon is the man in the parable who has the little debt, and who is forgiven little. And this sinful woman is the one who has the great debt, who is forgiven greatly. Now notice there how Jesus is not denying that from a human perspective, Simon is more righteous than this woman. 
Her sins are far more glaring. Her debt to God truly is bigger. He acknowledges that. But the greatness of her debt does not disqualify her from forgiveness. No, in fact, it's the greatness of her debt that explains why she behaves with such a great display of emotions. Because her extravagant love for Jesus sprang forth from her experience of an extravagant forgiveness by Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, at first glance, you might read verse 47, and you might draw the conclusion that this woman was forgiven for or because she loved much. That would somehow seem to suggest that our forgiveness is based on the measure of our love for Christ, that if the more we love Jesus results, therefore, in more forgiveness for Jesus. But if that were to be true, that would be a contradiction of the very gospel of grace. Forgiveness would no longer be a free gift. It would be a result of work, something that you did earn. Friends, that is not what Jesus is teaching in verse 47. He's saying that this woman's great love for him was not the cause of her forgiveness, but rather the evidence of her having been forgiven. That's what he's saying there when he says, for she loved much. Just look at how much she loves. That indicates, that gives evidence to how much she's been forgiven. You just have to read this in the context. Look at Look at the context. Look at verse 35. We didn't read that. That's, that's the last verse of the section before our passage. Right before our text, in verse 35, it says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. There, Jesus is addressing the very criticism that he is unwisely associating himself with tax collectors and sinners, sharing table fellowship with them. And he's pointing out to his critics, he's pointing out the results of his ministry with sinners. That they are, these sinners are actually responding to the good news of repentance, of the good news of the gospel with repentance. And, and, and the wisdom in fellowshipping with these sinners is justified by all her children, is what he's saying. That is by what actions are being born forth. They serve as evidence. So in the same way, this woman in our passage is justified by all her children. The children being metaphorically, for her actions that are being born forth. Her actions toward Jesus, her extravagant gestures, are evidence that she has been forgiven, that she is still in a state of forgiveness. Now contrast all of that with Simon's apathy towards Jesus, which is explained, as we're told, by the fact that he has been forgiven little. As Jesus puts it, he was forgiven little, loves little. Jesus is saying, Simon, you're content with just showing bare minimum hospitality, giving me bare minimum devotion because you love me little. And the reason why you love me little is because you have been forgiven little. You cannot even fathom why this woman would behave in this way because you cannot even fathom her experience of such a great forgiveness. So that's what Jesus identifies as the root cause of Simon's spiritual apathy, his experience of little forgiveness. The experience of little forgiveness. 
Well, friends, this would apply to all of us as well. I'm sure we could point to a number of factors that have contributed to the apathy that we are feeling right now. Like we said, the pandemic-related disruptions of the normal rhythms of our lives haven't helped us. All the stress and the busyness of your studies or your job or whatever's going on at home could all be factors. But the underlying root cause of our spiritual apathy is little forgiveness. The inability to relate to the great forgiveness that this woman has experienced. That's the root cause. Now, if that's a right diagnosis, then perhaps the prescribed treatment is to go and rack up a huge debt before God. So, so go and be like the bigger debtor in the text. Be like this woman in our story so that we then, therefore, can later experience a great forgiveness. That seems to be the takeaway, right? Want to turn around your apathetic heart? And go and be like this woman, go out and sin greatly, and then come to Jesus later to experience a greater forgiveness that will generate within you a greater love. Seems to make sense, right? How many of us, growing up in youth group, used to envy the youth retreat speaker who had that powerful testimony of how he used to be in a gang and how he used to do drugs and how he committed all these crimes. But then, by the grace of God, he became a Christian. And now he's a pastor. And now he's speaking to all these youth. And all the church kids are like, oh, man, I wish I had a testimony like that. Mine's so boring. Oh, man, I wish I, wish I had his experience. So common for, for those of us who grew up in the faith to be somewhat envious of great sinners who became Christians later on in life because they seem to always have this greater love for Jesus than we do. But should we sin more in order to experience more forgiveness, in order to love Jesus more? By no means. That is the devil's logic. Don't buy that. That is not an effective treatment for an apathetic heart. That's not what the great physician would prescribe. This, my friends, leads to our third point, or the third task that Jesus is, is, is doing. He's helping us to determine an effective treatment for spiritual apathy. And the gospel treatment, friends, for an apathetic heart is for God to give you a new one. You need a new heart. You need God to replace your heart of stone with a beating heart of flesh, which is going to supply you now with new eyes of the heart that enables you to finally see the reality of your sinfulness, that just like this woman in the story, you too are a great sinner in need of a great forgiveness. Simon's problem was that he was too focused on the differences between him and this woman of the city. He was too focused on how much smaller his debt was compared to hers. Just like how much smaller the debt was between those two debtors in the parable. But the parable is not really about the size of your debt. Yes, there is a difference between the two debtors. There is a difference between Simon and the woman. Yes, there may be a difference between you and the person you're thinking about. But what's more important is what you share in common. 
what Simon and the woman shared in common, the fact that neither one could pay off their debt regardless of its size. So no matter the size of your sin debt before God, you have to realize that all of us are spiritually impoverished. We are all spiritually bankrupt. That means we are unable to pay off even a cent. And so the the most morally upright person you know stands equally condemned and is in need of forgiveness as much as the worst of sinners. That's the point of Jesus' parable and of what he's trying to teach Simon. To wish that you had lived a life of great sinfulness before your conversion means that you have yet to grasp your own capacity to sin. You fail to see your own sinfulness. I remember hearing a pastor share his testimony of how he was saved from a life of hard crime, drug use, and violence, all at the ripe age of six. What he meant was that even though he was saved at six years old, he was still saved from that extraordinary life of sin because this pastor was so in tune with his sinful heart that he knew if not for the grace of God, he would have turned out to be that great of a sinner. Those are the eyes that all of us need. That's what Simon needed to see. That he is a great sinner and he needs Jesus' forgiveness as badly as this woman. But unfortunately, he is blinded to these realities. That's why he thinks he has little need for forgiveness and thus he has little love, love for the forgiver. So if the root cause of our apathetic hearts is a, per- is a perception that we need little forgiveness... And if the effective treatment is for you to get a new heart with new eyes of the heart that is able to see the gravity of your sin and the greatness of your Savior, then how do you get that new heart? That's what we need. So what do you do? Well, friends, you get that new heart by first looking to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to that horrible cross, that cruel, brutal instrument of torture and death. And what do you see? Stare at it long enough, and it will tell you something. It will tell you that your sins are so vile, so offensive, the only way to wash you clean was for the Son of God to be nailed onto that horrible cross. We are that bad off. Let's not pretend anymore. Nothing we can do can wash us clean. If there there was something else we could have done, if there was another option, don't you think God the Father who, who loves his son more than anything, don't you think he would have taken the other option? But the cross was the only way because our sins are just that sinful. But now, friends, keep your eyes on that cross and now focus on the Savior who is nailed to it. Who is this man? In verse 48, they ask, the guests ask a very similar question when Jesus tells the woman that her sins are forgiven. They say, who is this who even forgives sins? Because every Jew in those days knew that only God can forgive sins. So who is this Jesus? Who is he claiming to be? This Jesus is the Savior 
who lived a life that you should have lived, who took on all of your debt upon himself so that he could die the death that you deserve to die. Friends, you contribute nothing in this exchange. You don't pay a thing. You freely receive God's forgiveness in Christ by faith alone. And just as Jesus told a woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, friends, he speaks the same good news to you. Your faith will save you. You can go in peace. And I pray that God gives gives each of you a new heart with new eyes to see this good news. I hope each one of you leaves here identifying no longer with Simon, but with this woman. May you go in peace, assured that you have received a great forgiveness and filled in your heart with a great love for our great Savior. Let me pray that for you. Father, please do this work just as you did in this woman's life. Do this work in the hearts of every single one of us here. Help us to see the gravity of our sinfulness and yet at the same time to see the greatness of the salvation that Jesus has procured through his life, death, and resurrection. And may our hearts be transformed and be overwhelmed with a great love for him. In Jesus' name, amen.